Hello everyone and welcome to our first podcast from the ECR Group in the European Parliament in Brussels. The ECR Group represents the European Conservatives and Reformists in the European Union and it's the third largest group in the European Parliament. I'm Christina Rasmussen from Denmark and I have here next to me my colleagues Otto Jotto from Finland Hello. and Carlos Bormestas from Latvia. Hello. Hi guys. Hello. Together we will be hosting the discussion with our guest today. And our guest today is British member of the ECR group, Mr. Jeffrey Van Orden. A big welcome to you. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for taking your time to be our guest here today. Pleasure. Mr. Van Orden sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Security and Defence Subcommittee, where he works to oppose European political integration, especially what concerns EU's meddling in defence and the recent talks about creating a European Defence Union. He's a former senior British Army officer with wide experience and in particular in the field of counterterrorism. and his last military appointment was in fact in NATO headquarters. Today we're going to talk with Mr. Van Orden about security and defense in terms of how to make Europe more safe and secure from current threats like terrorism and Russian aggressions. We will also hear his view on the election of Trump in the United States and how he thinks it will affect security and defense business in Europe. So, I will now give the word to my colleagues who will take on the conversation from here. Right, uh, Mr. Van Orden, uh, thank you very much for coming. Uh, we really value and appreciate your time. You. Uh, I actually wanted to follow on, before we start, to follow on uh, what Christina said. Uh, given the fact that um, you have had an extensive experience in British military and especially in, in, in intelligence, um, uh, Do you know something about the European Union uh, um, security that we don't know, <laughs> which which partly would explain why your views are, uh, let's say, uh, different than, than the majority of views uh, here in Brussels bubble? <laughs> so, um, I don't think that I know anything about it that's not available for people to understand and find out. You can nod uh, if you can't say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> But uh, what I do feel is that uh, I have a better understanding than many people by virtue of the fact that uh, I have a background of military experience over a long period. Uh, I served at NATO headquarters. I understand NATO. Um, Immediately before I was elected to the European Parliament, I worked on security policy issues in the European Commission. So I know the way the European Commission works. Uh, now I've been in the Parliament for quite a long time and I've seen uh, what the pressures are and where all the sort of policy thrusts are coming from. So uh, I see where it is. And I think the problem is that there are at least two very contradictory views of the future of the European Union, um, notwithstanding Brexit. Uh, one is that there should be a tightly integrated uh, European Union. They don't like to use the term European state, but I suspect that uh, there is an ambition eventually to move in that direction. After all, we have all the trappings of that at the moment. And the reason that defense is so important in this context is that you can't get closer to the bone of national sovereignty than your national armed forces and defense. And I would say, after the currency, once you have control of national defense, then you are a long way down the road of removing the real vestiges of national sovereignty. And of course, that's precisely 
where the European, uh, uh, where the Eurocrats uh, want to take things. And if I may say, of course, there is a, another view, which I think uh, many in our political group have, and that is for a far looser and more flexible and outward-looking uh, community of nation-states where the focus is on the single market, um, where we agree to cooperate closely in many other areas of mutual interest, and where in particular we attach enormous importance to the transatlantic alliance. And that's where we're coming from, and it's one of the founding principles of our ECR group. Um, Mr. Warren, you have been known to be a very prominent critic of the European Defence Union, um, but why is it such a dangerous idea? Well, um, first of all, 22 out of the 28 member states are also members of NATO. Um, for the most part, the others, including uh, what might loosely be termed the, uh, some call them the neutrals, but I know they're not the neutrals, but indeed Finland and Austria uh, and the Irish Republic. Um, now, these are countries which are very closely bound to NATO, even though they are not NATO members. So I would say all of the uh, member states of the European Union, with the possible exception of Cyprus uh, and Malta, with those exceptions, uh, are in some way bound to the NATO alliance. So the idea that we should set up another defence uh, organisation, which of course if you have a European Defence Union, that's precisely what you're doing, uh, I would see as being detrimental and a distraction from NATO. And after all, we've been told time and time again by Mrs Mogherini, by President Juncker and by other leading lights in the European Union that the objective is to give the European Union strategic autonomy. Autonomy from what? And I suggest what this means is they want the European Union to have all the capabilities to be able to act without the United States. And I suggest that's thoroughly dangerous because the United States is our most important and vital ally. And I, I firmly believe that all of those states in Central and Eastern Europe uh, that feel most vulnerable to a lot of the threats and challenges that we have at the moment, I'll look to the United States to give serious credibility uh, to their defence. And I think once you take that out of the equation, uh, you are seriously weakening the message that we send to our potential enemies. So this underpins my uh, fundamental objection to the idea of a European Defence Union. So uh, you already touched uh, on uh, NATO, and um, as far as uh, I know, terrorism and uh, cybersecurity, which of course uh, has been a, a key areas uh, and state of play right now, are, are the main uh, things that Juncker is trying to push with this new uh, security agenda. Although I, I still remember uh, a NATO summit in Warsaw, where these key areas for Europe has already been put on table and actually resolved. So I perfectly know, for example, in Latvia, how NATO will act if there is an imminent uh, cybersecurity threat. Exactly. What's happening now with this 
EU army, let's say, well, who is going to be in charge? Either it's Juncker or Mogherini or... Well, well, they say, of course, they don't want an EU army, so they find all sorts of other expressions short of calling it uh, an EU army. Um, the fact is that over the years, the uh, European Union is constantly trying to find justifications for its involvement in uh, defence and security. Now, um, you know, we've seen this evolve. They talk about the comprehensive approach as if the European Union uniquely can bring all these various military and non-military instruments to bear on a crisis of some sort. And this is nonsense because when we address any crisis, of course, you bring a multiple, uh, multitude of instruments into play. And of course, we only have to look at um, NATO in Afghanistan to see things like the provincial reconstruction teams, which were essentially civilian teams with a bit of a military add-on that were operating in Afghanistan. Classic example of where civil and military uh, capabilities were being blended. So uh, my point there is you don't need the European Union uh, uniquely to somehow offer of this particular blend. And so the EU is constantly ranging around for areas where it thinks it uniquely can get involved. You mentioned uh, the whole cyber defense aspect. Well, of course, NATO is very much involved in that. Um, It's now become a very key aspect. Uh, Certainly, I speak for my uh, own armed forces in the United Kingdom. We're now investing a large amount of money uh, into this whole cyber defense area and we have specific military units as well as other organizations which are focused very much on this particular threat. So this again is not some area where the the European Union has something unique to offer. What I would say on this, and I don't want to be totally dismissive of everything that the European Union does, if the European Union wants to be helpful in the area of crisis management, I think it could do this by being complementary to what is being done elsewhere. Uh, complementary in particular to NATO. And what do I mean by that? Well, yes, maybe, maybe the European Union can mobilize some civilian uh, capabilities uh, which it can offer uh, to work alongside of NATO's essentially military uh, might which it uh, brings to the table. And in that way, we could have a division of labor. We certainly don't need the European Union creating the very same structures which already exist uh, at NATO. Uh, Britain has been uh, one of the major forces uh, to kind of, um, it has been against the establishment of the European army. But it's, uh, as far as I understand, it's not the only EU who kind of has this tendency to push towards this kind of development. So like who are the national state actors who would like to see something like that in the future? And uh, after Brexit, do you think there are interests which might Uh, end up developing something like a European army? Well, um, of course, if the United Kingdom were to be removed from the equation, you are taking out Europe's most powerful uh, military power. 
So um, that's an enormous uh, cut in the so-called uh, European military capabilities. Although they're not lost to Europe because we remain strong members of NATO, if not the leading European member of NATO, and that will continue and I hope uh, be revitalized. But you, the, the, the states who tend to be interested in pushing this EU agenda are primarily, I think, uh, France and Germany and in the uh, coattails of France, Belgium uh, also uh, comes into the frame. Um, now, why is this? Um, Germany, I think, is easy to explain because Germany has always seen the expression of its what foreign policy it has through international organizations, in particular through the European Union. We all know uh, this is a reflection of the history of Germany over the last uh, 70 or 80 years. And so the European Union is very, very important for Germany. Of course, they're rather torn because Germany also attaches great importance to NATO. So it depends who they've last spoken to, uh, what emphasis they're putting on which organization. Now, the French are interesting uh, because the French are, uh, certainly when you have a center-right uh, government in France, the Gaullists in France are souverainists. Uh, they attach enormous importance to the position of France in the world and all the rest of it. And so you might say, well, how do they reconcile this uh, to their attitudes to the European Union? Well, of course, I think for those same people, the European Union is France writ large. Uh, this is, again, the natural uh, position of France uh, that should have a very dominant uh, political uh, position in Europe. And naturally... Maybe they're hoping on this new fund. Ah, uh, well, yes, but no, but you see, with the exit of the United Kingdom, of course, they see the way is clear for them to take the lead in this area. Germany, of course, couldn't take the lead because that would be... Uh, you know, slightly impolite, given the, the sort of German background. Uh, so France would see the way is clear there. But at the same time, I have to say, when I have conversations with senior French military officers, um, they are entirely wedded to the NATO alliance. Uh, we have a bilateral UK-France defence treaty. They are very wedded to that. They're very supportive of the relationship they have with the United Kingdom. So there's a great ambivalence, I think, uh, in the French hierarchy about all this. And by the way, ambivalence in the French population, because whenever the French population is asked to vote on a European treaty, metropolitan France always says no, and we should bear that in mind. What do you think on this new um, defense fund that is proposed by Juncker's team? 3.5 billion euros, if I remember correctly? Um, before before you continue, I yeah. just wanted to, uh, to, to stress that should Europe um, fulfill its obligations to NATO, the European Union countries that are NATO, and, 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 and having 2% expenditure, uh, the defense expenditure, uh, European Union should annually spend more 96 billion euros. So every country would, would have this 2%. Now they're talking about 3.5 billion euros. New fund, I mean, Juncker loves funds, we know that, but does it make sense? Um, well, I mean, you know immediately it doesn't make a lot of sense. To be clear about the 2% of GDP, um, this isn't money given to NATO. 
that the requirement is that each of the allies, each of the nations, should itself spend 2% of its GDP on defense. In that way, it becomes a better NATO ally. So that is the that is requirement. This isn't the this isn't money handed over to NATO. What it does, it's investment in military capabilities, which can be available to NATO or other institutions for that matter. But that is where the, that's what the two percent is all about. Now, I think it's very interesting that the uh, European Union, at a time when it's going to have a major uh, cut in its budget, because after all, bear in mind that of the 28 member states of the European Union, only 10 are net contributors to the EU budget. That's the first thing to remember. And the second largest of these is the United Kingdom. So, and the amount each year varies, but we are talking about in net terms. In other words, what is given to the European Union after some of it has already come back to the United Kingdom, we give annually nine or ten billion pounds uh, a year to the European Union. Now that's going to be a big hole in the EU budget in years to come and yet at the moment they are busy finding ways of spending even more money. So that means that the EU budget is going to have to increase. And who's going to come up with that? German taxpayer again? I wonder if this has been explained to them uh, in this way, that they're now being asked to pay even more to the European Union. I wonder how that will go down with the average German citizen. So the money's got to come from somewhere. And by the way, and I've always argued uh, in all sorts of policy areas that if the European Union wants to spend more uh, in some particular area, if it's a new priority, then it should make compensating reductions somewhere else uh, in its budget in order to pay for that, instead of standing there with its hand out. And by, by the way, we also have the refugee problem. That's going to demand more money as well. So I see constant demands for more money, and I'm not quite sure where it's going to come from, particularly at a time when one of the largest contributors to the EU budget is going to be leaving uh, the EU. Um, in terms of the amounts of money that are being talked about now, uh, I think um, uh, Mr. Juncker is very good at conjuring up large sums of money, um, but when you nail them down, you find that only a certain proportion of them are actually coming from an EU budget as such. The rest is supposed to be conjured up in some way by member states or whatever. And when, by the way, he, he, he governed Luxembourg, his defense expenditure was 0.4% of GDP, the lowest yeah. in NATO. Yeah, well, there you are, you see. So. Um, but you see, they are talking about, in terms of de defense research, they're talking about a budget uh, in the first year, maybe of uh, 25 million, something like that. And then over the following three years, uh, some 90 million. Uh, and this is a preparatory fund. And then subsequently, they're talking about a sum of something like 500 million. So that's they're the sort of figures that they're talking about. Um, I mean, a country like the United Kingdom spends annually on defence research. Um, 
Well, approaching a billion uh, a year, if not more, is sometimes difficult to precisely say, well, what's defence research and, and all that, but uh, something approaching a billion, to put it in perspective. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about Russia next. Um, after the, the Georgian War and uh, annexation of Crimea, we are living in a different security environment. And um, many people are asking, like, uh, what are the different parties trying to achieve? So you have a long history in, in military and in politics. So in your perspective, what is tr Russia trying to achieve by acting the way it is acting? Like, what's the big picture and uh, what is kind of their end game? Well, um, the, the business that I was always in was putting myself uh, in the position of the potential enemy, if you like, and looking backwards from their perspective. And I think we have to try and understand better where it is the Russians are actually coming from. And in that way, we can better understand what we have to do in order to counter it. Um, I, I mean, Russia, Russia at the moment uh, is feeling left out, lacking recognition, she's not valued, she's not being given the great power status which she thinks she is due. Bear in mind, however, Russia has a GDP uh, smaller than the United Kingdom's, uh, per capita GDP is about the same as Poland, uh, but she has invested enormously in her military capabilities over the last 10 years. So at the same time that Western countries have been cutting their defense budgets, the Russians have been increasing that proportion of their defense budget. And as a consequence, they at this moment have some very capable, state-of-the-art and deployable military capabilities. Um, and not only that, as we have seen, they have the political will uh, to use these capabilities. And that is the combination that you need uh, with military power. You need the capability, in other words, the hardware and the trained personnel, and you need the political will. And it's and those the soft two, power it's the propaganda. Well, <laughs> it, yes, but you, that gets us into the whole hybrid warfare yeah. uh, uh, aspect, which, of course, the Russians are very adept at as well. But just talking about military power, and we have seen the effect of the demonstration of military power. Um, when we saw that Russian uh, naval task force sailing down through the English Channel and down through the Mediterranean, even though some people could laugh at the sort of black smoke pouring out of the smokestacks and things like that. Uh, and they could slightly chuckle about these rather antique uh, ships. Nevertheless, it was a very potent force and it was a very impressive demonstration of sea power. And even if it didn't impress some of us, uh, it certainly impressed one or two other people. So never underestimate uh, the power of military capabilities as a political demonstration. And then, of course, they've shown how they can use this as well. Um, Russia, and Russia under Putin in particular, they respect strength. 
they detect weakness very quickly. If they see weakness, they will move very quickly uh, to take advantage of it. If they see strength, uh, they will make a very rapid calculation of risk and probably pull back if they know that this is meaningful strength, which is why it's so important that the NATO alliance uh, has taken steps to reinforce its capabilities uh, in ways which it had rather lost uh, in recent years, uh, showing that it has a, an ability to forward deploy troops and have follow-on force that will back them up so that you could have sustained operations if the need came. Uh Coming from Latvia, I can't help myself uh, asking, do you see Baltic states as a, um, let's say, Achilles heel in terms of uh, Russia, in terms of European Union and in terms of uh, Trump America? We will, go, we will get back to Trump, of course, but... Yeah, well, um, uh, when the NATO guarantee, Article 5, Uh, is extended to which a, every Latvian knows by heart right yeah, now. Exactly. <laughs> when when a new country joins the NATO alliance, it is done uh, by the alliance in the full knowledge that the alliance will protect that nation if it thought that for whatever reason it was not going to be in a position to do that or that it was that nation was going to be too vulnerable to the sort of local vicissitudes uh, then it would keep it at arm's length and I think we have seen that with one or two other countries. As far as the um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are concerned uh, with our eyes open We've embraced those countries and we've said that we will defend them under Article 5 and there's no doubt about that. But actually, without these new additional task forces that are now located in, in each of uh, Baltic countries uh, before uh, Warsaw Summit, actually NATO uh, understood that we can't help these Baltic states before that. Well, it is precisely that uh, the um, invasion of the Ukraine Uh, was a wake-up call. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the activity we've seen of Russia in Syria has been a further wake-up call. So I don't think we're under any illusions that there is a potential threat. Um, we're also under no illusions that that threat might not come in or might not develop in the way that people would immediately think. It's not necessarily going to be in the most obvious way. We touched on this right. earlier. The hybrid warfare threat is particularly relevant to some of the more vulnerable countries. We're taking steps uh, to counter that. And after all, you don't necessarily just react to every uh, move that a potential uh, aggressor makes. Uh, if you're clever about these things, you deal with them in some place where they're not expecting it, by some means that they're not expecting it. So, you know, you don't necessarily deal with it head on. You have have to show that you're willing to respond. However, the action you need to take might well be done in some other part of the world or in some other way, which would be totally uh, a great surprise to that particular country and uncomfortable for the aggressor. And um, now we heard about like what is Russia trying to achieve. And do you think that European Union has any kind of plan or are we just kind of reacting to Russia? Uh, do we have our kind of like 
own end game in any any meaningful way. And is Russia really looking forward to its uh, to, to this new uh, security defense act that that the European is willing to take on to take on? Well, there are different views on this, and we know that we're member states of the European Union have different attitudes to uh, Russia, and historically they've uh, taken different views about the Russia relationship. And of course, um, we all like to have um, stability and certainty, and we're living in an age of great instability and uncertainty and turbulence at the moment, particularly political turbulence. So not only uh, do we have the whole Brexit issue, but we are expecting a new president of the French Republic. And of course, we know uh, that there will be a new president, President Trump, will be elected as President of the United States and assume office uh, in January. So and these are all uh, unknowns, uh, exactly how this is going to pan out. So if you are a potential aggressor, if you are someone that's threatening, uh, you could say this is an opportunity uh, to make mischief because every, there is so much uncertainty out there uh, which can be uh, exploited. Uh, but I think they need to be extremely careful. And you mentioned um, President-elect Trump. I think many politicians say things on the campaign trail, uh, which is uh, entirely different to the attitude that they're going to take when they have the realities of office. And I think that's precisely so. Now. Um, I understand that, uh, I think it was on the 18th of November, uh, President-elect Trump had a telephone conversation with the British Prime Minister, Theresa May. I think he also had a, a telephone conversation with the Secretary-General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg. He reassured both of them that as far as he was concerned, uh, NATO had prime importance. The Article 5 guarantee was absolutely inviolable and it was his firm intention uh, to stand by these pledges. So that is the message which I understood has been conveyed from President-elect Trump uh, and I have no reason to doubt that. Having said that, I. Of course, every president of the United States has wanted the Europeans to contribute more to defense. They, you know, we've, we have, if you like, lived off the fat of the land while the Americans have guaranteed our defense. That doesn't mean setting up another organization. What it means is pulling more weight in the organization in which the Americans themselves are committed. That's really what they want to see. And I, and I think this is a, a pure deceit if people try to say to the Americans that the answer to this burden-sharing problem is the European Union. On the contrary, it will create divisions across the Atlantic instead of unity, uh, and it's a diversion when people should be focused on revitalizing the NATO alliance. And we should be absolutely clear about that. Even for those EU countries that aren't in NATO? So are we honestly saying that Finland and Sweden, for example, would look to 
the uh, to Brussels and President Juncker to Otto, def- to Otto de- is from well, Finland precisely <laughs> to defend them in I time can't of crisis. On that. <laughs> exactly, and I know that of course in those countries the whole question of NATO accession is a very difficult domestic uh, political topic. Nevertheless, the reality is that both of those nations. Uh, have very, uh, very good, uh, very well-developed uh, military capabilities for their size, uh, which are well netted in uh, to NATO. And when it comes to the bit, it is the the power of NATO that they would want to see enlisted on their side. And that's what gives them, uh, hopefully they go to bed at night feeling comfortable that there is that big arm protecting them. And I don't imagine for one moment they would get any comfort out of the thought when President Juncker would mobilise the Luxembourg National Guard uh, in order to come to the support of uh, those countries. Uh, I think that says it all. All right. Yeah, just to return to uh, the threat of Putin and Russia. Uh, I just want to ask you your opinion on uh, the statement of Donald Trump. He said that Putin is a great leader and that he thinks he will get along very well with him. So what do you think about that? Should we be afraid in Europe of Trump's statement? Well, um, uh, President-elect Trump has voice his views. Uh, I understand that uh, Monsieur Fillon uh, is potentially uh, the next president of the French Republic, um, has also expressed views which are a little bit warmer towards uh, Mr. Putin and and, and Russia. Um, I can understand that um, uh, a new administration in a country might well look at the opportunities for doing better in some foreign policy areas that they might say well my predecessor hasn't succeeded very well look at the mess the world's in maybe we need a different approach i mean i have to be you know, give a word of caution about this because remember president obama when he came into office and many of us who wouldn't be natural supporters of someone like obama nevertheless welcomed his election as president we were all full of uh, optimism and you remember he went to cairo and he went to other places made great speeches It's about resetting the clock and relationships and all of those things. And everyone thought, oh, well, this is marvelous. And where did it go? No, what people detected was weakness. What people detected was a removal of the United States from the power game. And if you create a security vacuum, someone else is going to move into it. And that's precisely what we've seen in various parts of the world, which are now very threatening. So I hope we will have a strong president of the United States that will show real leadership. I hope he will be very well advised by experienced and balanced uh, national security and defense advisors, uh, and that we will start seeing that strength again, uh, which I think has been rather lacking in recent years. Thank you. And with this being the final statement from Mr. Van Orden, we will wrap up this podcast. And we would like to thank you very much, Mr. Van Orden, for joining us here today. And Your uh, first podcast. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. The very first. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to the audience out there for listening. And feel free to listen in for our next ECR podcasts in the future.